Good morning. A hostage swap between the U.S. and Iran. Climate protesters arrested on Wall Street. Auto workers strike for a better contract. A one-year-old dies from fentanyl poisoning at a residence used for daycare in New York City. And we discuss race and the media. With the news for Tuesday morning, September 19, 2023, I'm Paul Durienzo in New York. It was not quite Bridge of Spies, where a Soviet spy is exchanged in the dead of night for an American pilot on a bridge linking East and West Berlin, 1962, at the height of the Cold War. But on Monday, five prisoners from the United States being held in Iran were exchanged for five Iranians held in American jails, although two of the released Iranians decided to remain in the U.S. All five former U.S. detainees jumped on the first plane, arriving in Doha, Joining them were two other U.S. citizens who had been blocked from leaving Iran. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. I had the great pleasure of speaking to seven Americans who are now free. Free from their imprisonment or detention in Iran, out of Iran, out of prison, and now in Doha, uh, en route back to the United States to be reunited with their loved ones. Uh, five of the seven, of course, had been unjustly detained, imprisoned in Iran, some for years. Uh, two others had been prevented from leaving Iran. Um, I spoke to them after they landed in Doha. Um, I can tell you that uh, it was uh, for them, uh, for me, an emotional uh, conversation. As part of the agreement, the U.S. released $6 billion in frozen assets held in South Korea. While the U.S. says there are restrictions on how the money can be spent, Iran says it has full control of the cash. And on Sunday, more than 70,000 marched for climate justice through Midtown Manhattan, four times the turnout expected by organizers. Meanwhile, yesterday, more than 100 climate protesters were arrested protesting banks on Wall Street. The protesters blocked every entrance of the Federal Reserve Building, preventing workers from getting down the street. The climate march coincides with the gathering of world leaders of the United Nations General Assembly on Tuesday. One of the thousands of marchers on Sunday is anti-nuclear activist and regular contributor to the news, Leona Morgan, a Diné or Navajo, she hails from New Mexico, the site of Los Alamos National Laboratory, known as LANL, where the first atomic bombs were assembled and the first bomb was tested. Morgan says the people who live near the laboratory and the nuclear test site were left out of the recent film Oppenheimer about physicist Robert Oppenheimer, who headed the bomb project. My impressions of the movie Oppenheimer are similar to that of old Hollywood and kind of this, you know, romantic notion of the Wild West. Even though it wasn't referenced like that, it's 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 this idea of colonization and white supremacy, basically white men trying to control not just Mother Earth, but politics, um, military, and doing a lot of this in secret intentionally to separate, you know, the bomb, 
And here in New Mexico, everyone who has dealt firsthand with either Los Alamos or the Trinity site, as well as uranium mining, all of us have lived these experiences and we're still living with them, either our relatives or current day contamination of water and things like that. We're, we're still dealing with the impacts of all of the mining, the fallout, and, and it's still growing here in New Mexico, this military industrial complex, starting with Los Alamos and Incendia and then proposed expansions at WIP. So that's just the weapons side. Now we're dealing with this whole new onslaught from the nuclear energy sector. What they want to do is really focus it in southeast New Mexico. From Oppenheimer, we, we only see one side of the story. But in New Mexico, we don't, in the movie, we don't see anyone from New Mexico or what New Mexico had to suffer. As a state, I mentioned some of the facilities I'm sure people know there was an accident at WIP. When things happen, these things get in the news, and maybe your audience in New York hears about it. In New Mexico, it's still very much out of the public eye because we're a rural state. We have a low population density. And then we also have a lot of horrible metrics when we're measuring the quality of life out here. So New Mexico really gets written off and is kind of seen as expendable. This movie continues that status quo, not just of indigenous people. I'm really focusing on New Mexico as part of the military industrial complex that it was and still is today. We don't see any of that in the movie. We don't see the theft of indigenous lands, the cancers, the contamination to sacred places and sacred resources. That was very evident in places like the pueblos of Santa Clara and San Ildefonso when dealing with flannel. So right now, today, Lanel wants to release tritium. There's an organization called Tewa Women United. They have a petition on their website. They're asking, what does this mean? What does it do to us? What does it do to the environment? These are things happening today, besides the plutonium pit increases and things like that. The movie Oppenheimer does little to talk about the Trinity site, the first place the nuclear weapon was tested or the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, that's something that's actually in Congress now. There's really an important need to extend and expand this Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, which we call RICA. There's an opportunity for the United States to recognize the first victims of the Trinity test. Tina Cordova talks a lot about this She's part of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium who works on this issue. They often talk about being the first unwilling, unnotified, basically, and unconsenting victims of this first test. And so they've never really been acknowledged or apologized to before this year. Actually, this year, there's been significant movement to recognize this history of our people in New Mexico who have been totally erased. Leona Morgan is an anti-nuclear activist with the Diné or Navajo Nation based in New Mexico. She was in New York for the climate march over the weekend. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. In union news, the United Auto Workers says it may expand its strike against the big three automakers on Friday if no progress is made in talks with Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler. Chrysler is now owned by Amsterdam-based multinational Stellantis. 
Meanwhile, negotiations continued as the strike passed four days with no sign of a deal. Nearly 13,000 workers are striking in Michigan, Ohio, and Missouri. President Joe Biden says he backs the workers and that record profits by the automakers should translate to a record contract. No one wants a strike. Say it again. No one wants a strike. But I respect workers' right to use their options under the collective bargaining system. And I understand the workers' frustration. Over generations, auto workers sacrificed so much to keep the industry alive and strong, especially through the economic crisis and the pandemic. Workers deserve a fair share of the benefits they help create for an enterprise. I do appreciate that the parties have been working around the clock. And when I first called them at the very first day of the negotiations, I said, please stay at the table as long as you can to try to work this out. And they've been around the clock and the companies have made some significant offers. But I believe they should go further to ensure record corporate profits mean record contracts for the UAW. Let me say that again. Record corporate profits, which they have, should be shared by record contracts for the UAW. And just as we're building an economy of the future, we need labor agreements for the future. The three automakers have proposed 20% raises over the four-and-a-half-year term of their proposed deal. The UAW is demanding a 40% pay increase. The editor-in-chief of the Real News Network is Maximilian Alvarez. Negotiations will uh, continue. The UAW is sending a very clear message. President Sean Fain stated clearly in his announcement on Thursday night, this is the first time in the union's history when they are striking all three of the big three automakers at once. Normally in the past, when we did have strikes like we saw in 2019, only one of the big three will be struck. Whatever contract results from that will become the template for the contracts for the other two of the big three auto makers. And so the UAW negotiating team is going to continue to try to hammer out tentative agreements with the big three auto makers. More could be joining at any moment. What this tactic allows the UAW to do is call for more locals in more strategic locations around the country to stand up and hit the picket line and disrupt production. Even though we're not currently watching all nearly 150,000 UAW members working in the auto industry going on strike at once, these three locals going on strike simultaneously can still cause a significant amount of economic disruption, as I'm being told that they are by workers that I'm talking to on the ground. Inflation, that's, I think, the big thing is the company is saying this is just going to contribute to inflation. The companies are saying this is going to contribute to inflation, but they never really have anything to say about their executives' giant salaries or their massive shareholder dividends and stock buybacks, what any of that has to do for inflation. And, you know, I think that this is a really pivotal moment, not just for the UAW and the organized labor movement, but for working people in this country writ large. Go back to the Great Recession. Uh, We all were there and saw how the auto industry nearly collapsed. And in fact, uh, American taxpayers bailed out two of the big three automakers to the tune of $80 billion. At the same time, workers in the UAW opened their contracts and gave concessions away to try to keep their companies afloat. They made the necessary sacrifices 
to mitigate any further damage to the economy. UAW workers have shown in the past just how committed they are to making those sacrifices in order to keep the economy from hurting working people more than than is absolutely necessary, and they proved that in 2008. And yet, automakers promised UAW workers that when the industry turned around, when the companies were profitable again, that they would get those concessions back. That included the cost of living pay raise adjustment that workers would get and would have in place now in order to help them. We're talking about rank and file auto workers, over 100,000 of them. These are part of the economy, too. These are people who are trying to keep roofs over their heads. They're trying to pay for their kids' school supplies. They're trying to support local businesses. But because of the sacrifices they have already made for these companies and for the economy, they no longer have cost-of-living adjustments, which means that they, like the rest of us, have been getting absolutely hammered by the inflation over the past two years. Meanwhile, GM CEO Mary Barra is paying herself $29 million a year. This is insanity, and this is not even touching on the fact that when these companies did turn a profit, and in fact they have not only turned a profit, but they've become more profitable than they've ever been. We're not talking about the same auto industry that was on life support in 2008. We are talking about an industry that has raked in around a quarter of a trillion dollars over the past 10 years across the big three automakers. They are doing just fine, but no one asked them if they are contributing to inflation or if their corporate greed is doing anything to hurt the American economy. It's always put on the workers. The American people are not buying it. In fact, like 75% of the public according to the latest polls, are staunchly in support of the UAW workers on strike right now. And the UAW is here to say the working class is coming back to get what has been taken from it. We are coming back for what is ours. We made sacrifices. We toiled over the course of a pandemic. We kept this industry from cratering in 2008. And how did they repay us? They repaid us by more job cuts, more plant closures, more stock buybacks, more increases in executive pay. This has to stop, and UAW workers are really fighting for all of us in that respect. Maximilian Alvarez is editor-in-chief of The Real News Network. In related news, former President Donald Trump plans to skip the second Republican presidential debate at the end of the month and make a speech to auto workers in Detroit. In more strike news, actress Drew Barrymore announced her talk show would return to television as the SAG-AFTRA union says it will pick at her studio in New York City. The Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists have been on strike against the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers for several weeks now. Last week, Hollywood actors joined writers on the picket line for the first time in 63 years. Some daytime TV shows have been exempted from the strike because they don't use writers. The Drew Barrymore show is one of two that must abide by strike rules. In response to criticism of the show's planned return to the air, Barrymore says, I own this decision. A major issue in the strike is the growing use of artificial intelligence to copy the likenesses of actors exhibited in a recent sequel in the Indiana Jones series where computers made aged actor Harrison Ford look significantly younger. Sonali Kolhatkar is author of Rising Up, The Power of Narrative in Pursuing Racial Justice. She lives in Los Angeles and says 
there's a racial component in the use of AI by the movie industry. Our labor movement has diversified incredibly. It used to be, there was a time, of course, when most organized labor kept out women, kept out people of color. That has changed now. We're seeing huge levels of union activity among um, people of color, and labor movements have diversified because people of color and women have pushed their way in. And specifically to the sag after strike, you know, I've covered the, the strike I've been on the picket line, and one of the things that um, filmmakers and, and creators of color brought up over and over again was it's not coincidence that just as Hollywood has begun diversifying, studios have decided that it's no longer you know, worth paying um, these jobs very well. It's no longer having residuals where people can actually like live off of the money. It's no coincidence that when people of color have entered the field, the field has become less lucrative. And so they are marching and striking, and it's pretty remarkable. So today is a very different kind of a strike than, than sag after would have, you know, than a sag after strike would have been, say, 20, 30 years ago. And so today I think that is, you know, absolutely important for people like Drew Barrymore and Bill Martin to not cross the picket line because it means rights and, and fair pay for workers of all races, and that's really important. Sonali Kolhatkar is author of Rising Up, The Power of Narrative in Pursuing Racial Justice. We'll have a complete interview with Sonali later in the broadcast. Meanwhile, in New York City, two suspects are charged with murder in the death of a one-year-old and sickening of three other toddlers following alleged exposure to the synthetic opioid and cancer drug known as fentanyl at a Bronx daycare center on Friday. The two are also charged with manslaughter and endangering children. Police had responded to a 911 call and found one-year-old Nicholas Dominici unresponsive. Three other kids were hospitalized. City Health Commissioner Dr. Ashwin Vossen credited quick thinking by first responders who administered the anti-overdose drug Narcan to saving two of the other children. A fourth child had been picked up earlier and then taken to a hospital. Vashon says daycare center inspectors are not trained to look for drugs. I'm very sorry, but one of the things my child care inspectors are not trained to do is look for fentanyl. But maybe we need to start. Maybe we need to start. But that has not been a part of our thinking for decades or years in doing this work. And it's served us well because we keep our babies safe through thousands of these centers. There are over, I think there are around 6,000 plus centers like this, home-based daycare centers in the city of New York that we inspect on. So. That, those are the kinds of things that are looked for um, in those visits, but this, to date, has been out of the purview of these inspectors, and the incident that just happened maybe tells us that we need to make it in their purview. And let's be, let's be clear on something. The, inspect, the inspectors did not go in and see a drug lab and ignored it. You saw the small amount uh, so we do not want to give the, the perception that they went in, did their job, and did the necessary inspections. That included a surprise inspection. And they did not walk in and said, here's a drug lab, let me walk past it. And so I don't want to give that imp impression, and we need to be clear on that. The daycare center was licensed by the state and was last inspected by officials with the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene on September 9th. And finally, as reported earlier, Soli Kolhatkar is author of Rising Up, The Power of Narrative and Pursuing Racial Justice. She spoke at length of the news on how media interacts with America's racial divide. 
what I outline in my book is that we've had a press that has been dominated essentially by white men in, you know, whether it's the right wing news, whether it is the liberal, so-called liberal corporate media and our newsrooms and our newspapers are dominated, uh, have been traditionally dominated by white men. And we write what we know. We are made of stories. Each of us carries with us the stories that shape our background. And so we view the world through the lens that is shaped by our lived experiences. So if you're a white man living in a, you know, urban neighborhood of a city in the United States, you have a very, very different uh, interaction and set of interactions with the police than a black person or black man in particular. And so when you cover the news of racist police brutality, you immediately and automatically give the police the benefit of the doubt or you can tend to based on your own experience personal experiences and report the story that way and so an easy correction to having a more balanced view of racist police brutality is to diversify newsrooms that's just step one and even that has been something that our corporate media in particular have been so loath to do because when we narrow the story the, the demographics of the storytellers then we narrow the lens through which our stories are told and that necessarily results in one-dimensional views of people of color, which can be reductive, which can basically reduce us to criminals or lazy or, you know, just sort of one-dimensional beings who are dehumanized. And when you dehumanize somebody, then you can incarcerate them without a second thought. So, yeah, these things are all very much linked to who is telling the news, who is writing the news. Mm-hmm. And you talk about independent media makers. What do you mean? How do you describe or how do you define independent media? Independent media are those media that are independent of the same kinds of corporate concerns and commercial concerns that big media are beholden to, which is needing advertising in order to publish the paper, which is being owned by a company that's traded on Wall Street, uh, right? So independent media are nonprofit media outlets. Independent media tend to be grassroots, local, community-oriented. They tend to have a smaller staff whose entire goal is to tell the news in a way that's accurate, that's compelling, and that serves democracy. If you work in a corporate news outlet, then you have you know, ostensibly, theoretically, all of those same concerns, but then you have the much, much bigger added pressures of pleasing advertisers, making room for, you know, sponsor messages, etc., and not upsetting the powers that be who are the But now aren't these products, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, is these products are being sold now. It's almost like Diversity Central when you watch television as far as the products are being. uh, A matter of fact, the right wing is attacking corporate America for being too uh, acceptive of trans people and things like that. Well, yes, of course. The right wing media has a very, very specific worldview. The right wing media is the storytelling engine of conservative America. And that story that they tell is that you know, intrepid white settlers founded the nation and uh, made it the greatest country on the planet. And now uh, people of color are trying to cut in line and take what's theirs. And we have to stop them. That is, you know, just very, very sort of simplistically explaining the worldview that's put forward by right-wing media and right-wing news outlets. So when they see any news outlet giving a serious platform to somebody who, who they have otherized, who they see as threatening their views and their interests, they will attack them. 
you know, and so that you can understand so many, many dynamics in this nation today if you understand the story that the right wing is, is, is espousing. And then the question arises, well, what's our story, right? What is the story of a multiracial democracy and how do we tell that story? Because it's a beautiful, very attractive story. Mm-hmm. Now you have two chapters on Hollywood, so I assume you're from Los Angeles, and I was wondering, <laughs> yeah. uh, and a, a city where I, I love and visited often in my life, and want to go back there sometime. Uh, sunny all the time, <laughs> pretty much. Anyway, except yes, for the fires. I'm sitting at a coffee shop outside right now. It's right, really uh, it's raining here and dark, and well, anyway, um, white Hollywood's cop copaganda. What's copaganda? Copaganda is a term that has been coined, you know, by others, not me. I don't want to take credit for it, but it's basically pro-police propaganda. It's storylines in our fictional, you know, uh, television shows, uh, scripted television, films, etc., that put forward a view of police as the noble purveyors of good, of, uh, you know, the, the ones who make safety possible, the ones who keep us safe. And when uh, and, and copaganda tells the story that when police do bad things, it's an outlier. It's not a systemic thing. And copaganda is very, very insidious because it is very specifically the, uh, you know, up, uplifting the institution by which racial capitalism in particular is enforced, right? Policing originated from slave catching patrols. And so that never has been challenged or changed. And depending on who you are in America, you may call 911 when you feel like you're threatened, or if you're a person of color, you may be terrified of calling 911 mm-hmm. because you may be terrified of, you know, ending up uh, in prison yourself or killed. And so, propaganda serves to erase the critiques that people of color have about the brutality and racism of policing. Propaganda serves to justify siphoning millions and billions of our tax dollars into enforcement and the carceral state and imprisonment rather than into the things that really keep us safe, such as, you know, good, safe schools and uh, hospitals and housing and medical care, etc., and mental health care. Um, and so propaganda is absolutely critical um, to identify and address and then challenge. I wanted to ask you about the SAG after strike. Our labor movement has diversified incredibly. It used to be, there was a time, of course, when most organized labor kept out women, kept out people of color. That has changed now. We're seeing huge levels of union activity among um, people of color, and labor movements have diversified because people of color and women have pushed their way in. And specifically to the SAG after strike, you know, I've covered the, the strike. Uh, been on the picket line and one of the things that um filmmakers and, and creators of color brought up over and over again was it's no coincidence that just as hollywood has begun diversifying studios have decided that it's no longer you know worth paying um these jobs very well it's no longer having residuals where people can actually like live off of the money it's no coincidence that when people of color have entered the field, the field has become less lucrative. And so they are marching and striking, and it's pretty remarkable. So today is a very different kind of a strike than, than sag after would have, you know, than a sag after strike would have been, say, 20, 30 years ago. And so today I think that is, you know, absolutely important for people like Drew Barrymore and Bill Martin to not cross the picket line because it means rights and, and fair pay for workers of all races, and that's really important. Anything you'd like to add? 
I would love for people to check out my book, Rising Up, The Power of Narrative and Pursuing Racial Justice. Please support your local independent bookstore. I am on book tour. You can find out all about the book at risingupwithsonali.com. Sonali Kohatkar is author of Rising Up, The Power of Narrative and Pursuing Racial Justice. And that's the news for Tuesday morning, September 19, 2023. I'm your host, Paul Durienzo. You can find the news at pauldurienzo.wordpress.com.